The sermon this morning is based on the gospel lesson, although uh, there's a common theme that runs throughout all three of the readings. Uh, I hope you'll notice the theme. If you're not going to know, well, I'm going to tell you what it is anyways. (laughs) It's the theme of rejection. In the Old Testament lesson, we heard the call of Ezekiel, where the Lord warned him that he would likely be rejected by the rebellious and stubborn house of Israel. And indeed, Ezekiel was rejected. And he suffered much for the word that he was sent to preach. In the epistle lesson, we heard the Apostle Paul actually boasting about being insulted and persecuted. And now, from the Gospel according to Mark, uh, we'll read chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. And in it, we see that this rejection even extends to our Lord himself. It's on page 711 of the Pew Bible, and please stand as you are able for the reading of God's word. From Mark 6, beginning at verse 1, we read in Jesus' name. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joses, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Father, these are your words. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. You may be seated. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. You probably hear me say those words at the beginning of every sermon, and it's not just a a ritual, uh, but it's a reminder of really the point of a sermon. What you're supposed to get from the contents of this is more than anything God's grace, mercy, and peace. And it's a reminder to me, too, as well, uh, that when I do this, that's what ought to come through. Dear saints, the world is hostile to Christianity. It is hostile to you, it is hostile to your faith, and it is hostile to your Lord. It has always been this way, and it will always be this way right up until the day our Lord appears again on this earth. Now, when I say that to you, I should also warn you against a persecution complex. 
There's a temptation sometimes when someone disagrees with us or promotes a competing worldview to play the persecution card. But not everyone who disagrees with us is hostile to us, and not everyone who advocates for laws that disagree with us is persecuting us. Peacefully promoting an agenda because you're convinced that it's good and beneficial is not persecution. In the United States, we really see little, if any, actual persecution of Christians. If you want to see real persecution, then you need to go somewhere like Nigeria, China, or just about anywhere in the Middle East. That's where Christians are imprisoned and beaten and even killed simply because of what they believe. We don't face that kind of persecution here, but it is possible that someday we might. And that's not a commentary on our society. It's simply an observation based on history. Lands that were once safe for Christians have become hostile. Our Lord warned us that this could happen, and he himself is the prime example. His own countrymen shouted for his death, even when he had done nothing wrong. Even his own hometown was against him. This is what we read in the gospel lesson. It hadn't yet risen to the level of violence. What we read about here is simple ridicule and disbelief, which was most unfortunate for them. Jesus only healed a few people there. When you stop and think about that, it's uh, kind of interesting that he was only able to heal a few people there. Well, going to a town and healing a few people is really a big deal, right? Uh, But it it ends up being marvelous that only a few people there uh, are healed. And instead of them marveling at Jesus' wonders, he's actually the one that is amazed at them for their unbelief. From other passages, we know that this is the town of Nazareth. Now, the first two verses of the gospel lesson seem typical of the reaction Jesus would get from the common people. They generally received him with gratitude and amazement. Whenever Jesus encountered hostility, it was usually from the ruling class. But the common people always seemed to be impressed by his wisdom and power. The only thing that appears different in the first two verses is that Jesus is in his hometown. Other than that, it's just business as usual. He was teaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and the people say, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? So far, so good. That sounds good, right? But then verse 3 is kind of a turning point, and it starts to look like their astonishment in verse 2 comes more from disbelief than approval. They say, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joses, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters with us? And they took offense at him. They know this guy. They watched him grow up. He Yeah, he seemed like a well-behaved kid, but it's just hard to believe that he's a mighty prophet when you know him. So they don't believe. It seems at first glance that the sole reason they don't believe is simply because they know him. But there's really more to it than that. They're actually insulting Jesus. First, when they call him a carpenter, and second, when they refer to him as the son of Mary. Now, I'll explain these two things. Uh, First, there's nothing wrong with being a carpenter. 
But at that time, it was uh, not considered a very noble profession, especially in small towns like Nazareth. That's because there wasn't enough work in a small town to keep a carpenter busy all the time. So they had become itinerant workers, taking their trade wherever the work was. That meant the carpenters would often have to leave their families at home while they disappeared for long stretches of time. This wasn't really uh, seen as a good thing to do for your family. Now, Jesus, he didn't have a wife and children, but he was the oldest son of Mary, and the perception may have been that he should have stayed home and taken care of her. We don't know uh, at this point where Joseph is, the father. He may have died, or he might have been on the road working, or he might have been at home. We just, we don't know. If he wasn't at home, the people of Nazareth might have thought that Jesus should have stayed home instead. So that, uh, so that could be part of their disrespect for him. Or they may have simply been associating him, associating him with other carpenters. Either way, their identification of Jesus as a carpenter was not done in appreciation for the trade. And then their dishonor becomes even more pronounced when they refer to Jesus as the son of Mary. Now this sounds fine to us. Jesus is the son of Mary. But it was typical in the ancient world, especially among the Jews, to refer to a person by his father's name, even if that father was deceased. Jesus' full legal name would have been Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. But the people refer to him by his mother's name. And this is actually kind of a shot at him. Apparently, they know that Jesus was conceived out of wedlock and that Joseph isn't Jesus' biological father. By omitting Joseph and referring to Jesus simply as the son of Mary, they're insulting his birth. They're calling him an illegitimate child, and they simply cannot believe that such a child would grow up to be a mighty prophet. They know that Joseph isn't Jesus' biological father, so they assume that Mary and some other guy must have had a sinful encounter, and they think that's where Jesus came from. They think, then, that they know better than all those gullible folks in other towns. Maybe those people in Cana and Capernaum and Nain are falling for this prophet thing, but we're not going to buy it. We know where this guy really came from. They think they know the rest of the story when they really don't. They're missing, of course, the whole thing about the virgin birth. So they took offense at him. In Greek, the word for this is scandalizo. It's apparently where we get our English word scandal from. The people were scandalized by Jesus. And I kind of like this translation better than the one that says they took offense at him. For one thing, it's more literal to the original grammar. The verb is passive. It's not like the people decided to take offense at Jesus. It's really something that happens to them because of Jesus' origin. And the word scandalize is a little bit stronger than the word offend. The word offend has actually gotten, well, kind of cheap. We use it when we're just insulted by something or even when we just disagree with something someone says. So when someone says something that disagrees with our sensibilities, we might say that we're offended by that. Or when you're at a restaurant and the person in the booth next to you is just cursing up a storm, we call that offensive language. And that's fine. 
If something bothers you, it's okay to say that you're offended because that's how we use the word. But the people at the synagogue in Nazareth were more than just bothered by something Jesus said. They weren't just put off by him. They were scandalized. The Greek word at least means to cause to stumble or even to cause to sin. So if something scandalizes you in the biblical sense of the word, it means that it actually causes you to sin or fall into disbelief. The vulgar person in the booth next to you probably doesn't cause that kind of scandal. But in Nazareth, the stuff about Jesus being a carpenter and being conceived out of wedlock caused the people to stumble and reject him. And it was because they knew Jesus, and they knew where he came from, or at least they thought they knew where he came from. They stumbled, especially over the appearance that he was an illegitimate child. Now, the point of this is simply the historical detail that the people who thought they knew Jesus, they passed judgment on him, and they considered him to be nothing. But in fact, what looked like weakness to them, being conceived and born out of wedlock, was actually the power of God, the virgin birth. They assumed it was some kind of moral deficiency, when in fact it was a holy and righteous miracle of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' strength appeared as weakness to them. And this is a theme that will continue with Jesus. And it's seen most clearly at the cross, when what appears to be weakness, his condemnation and death, is really the power of God, the salvation of the world. By outward appearances, Jesus was born an illegitimate child and died a felon. And this Glory to God is how he chooses to work in this sinful and fallen world. He chooses to work through circumstances and people who appear weak and rejected. And the prime example of this, of course, is the cross. But it's also something that we see in the lives of the prophets and apostles. In the Old Testament lesson, we heard the call of Ezekiel. God told him beforehand that the house of Israel is a rebellious house, and they might not listen. And they didn't. Ezekiel's prophecy seemed like foolishness to them, so they didn't repent, and they were taken into captivity. By all outward appearances, then, Ezekiel looked like a failure. And in the midst of this, he endured much personal suffering. And this was actually quite typical of the prophets. It was the prophetic pattern. And then in the second part of the gospel lesson, the part where Jesus sends the 12 disciples out, he has to give them instructions of what to do when they are rejected. Even though he gave them authority to cast out demons and heal the sick, they would still face rejection in many places. In many of the places they went, it went really, really well. In other places, it went poorly. This became even more pronounced after Jesus' crucifixion resurrection, and ascension, when the apostles were sent out all over the world preaching the gospel. Many people believed and were saved, but the apostles also faced opposition, severe opposition. The vast majority of them were arrested, beaten, and killed. 
Their lives were not the picture of success and happiness. The Apostle Paul spoke of this in the epistle lesson. He was extremely successful as a missionary, successful in terms of the number of people who believed because of his preaching. But he also suffered much, and he faced extreme opposition. So he says, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak, then I am strong. Sounds backward, doesn't it? But it seems to be the way God works. Even today, in places where Christianity is legal and held in fairly high regard, it's not growing very much, if at all. But in parts of Asia and Africa and in the Middle East, areas where Christianity is often persecuted and sometimes even illegal, that is where the gospel is spreading. And who knows? Maybe if Christianity continues to lose credibility in the Western world, it'll start growing again here. It sounds odd. Our natural reaction to ridicule is to stand up for ourselves and fight against it. Our natural reaction is to try to hang on to whatever cultural influence we may have left. And if we're convinced that our influence will have a positive impact on society, then that's not such a bad thing. We should want to have a positive impact. But that might not be God's plan. His plan may be to manifest his strength through weakness again. So if it turns out that we will endure ridicule, dishonor, shame, persecution, or even death, we should rejoice that we are counted worthy to share in the sufferings of our Lord. For it is because of his rejection and his unjust execution that we are saved. So if our lives begin to follow the pattern of the one whose name we are called by, that is, Christ, Consider his sufferings. And consider especially that he had a choice in all of it. Often when we suffer, we really have no say in the matter. We suffer against our will. We couldn't make it stop even if we wanted to. But consider the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Being the Son of God, by whom all things in heaven and on earth were created, he did have a choice. He had absolute power over those who killed him. When he was ridiculed in his hometown, he could have done something marvelous just to prove his power to them. But he didn't. His strength was hidden in weakness. It was hidden in the weakness of appearing as an illegitimate child. And on the cross, it was hidden in the appearance of a felon, a criminal condemned to death. But this is the power of God, because this is how he made atonement for sins. This is how he rescued sinners out of the clutch of sin and death. It was for our sake that he suffered and died. Then, the rest of the story, on the third day he was vindicated in his resurrection, and another day is coming when he will be revealed in his glory for all the world to see. And on that day, not before that day, but on that day, all who are called by his name And all who have suffered with him and on account of his name will also appear with him in glory. So for now, dishonor, but honor and glory will come.
And it's all because of the cross. Out of his suffering and shame will come glory, honor, and praise. Amen. Now may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.